We acknowledge with respect the Onondaga Nation, firekeepers of the Haudenosaunee, the indigenous people on whose land Syracuse University now stands. May the information you glean from this podcast motivate you to uphold indigenous values, protect Mother Earth, and honor indigenous treaties. I've voted now for five years. It's the closest thing to my consent to be governed. Other than the citizenship that was handed to me when I was born, there's no other document certifying my relationship with this nation. In today's conversation, I talked to Dr. Robert J. Miller about sovereignty, property, and what it's like to consent to a nation's sovereign right and rule. Welcome to the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. I'm Tanner Randall, your host from Good Faith Media. We're producing this podcast at the Religious Origins of White Supremacy Conference in December of 2023 at Syracuse University in New York. This year is particularly special because it's the 100th anniversary of Johnson v. McIntosh, the Supreme Court proceeding that installed the framework of the Doctrine of Discovery within American government. We will be talking about the different ramifications of the Doctrine of Discovery and how it led to indigenous values and land being stolen, as well as white supremacy and the general idea of revitalized indigenous culture. National entities govern borders. They subject the individual to certain rules and regulations that we must live our life by. But when did we consent to those rules? Even the ones made hundreds of years ago guide our life. So should we question what we follow? We would like to thank our sponsors who made this podcast possible. Many thanks to the Henry Luce Foundation, Syracuse University, Indigenous Values Initiative, American Indian Law Alliance, American Indian Community House, Good Faith Media, Tanitiera, and Towards Our Common Public Life. We appreciate your support. I'm Tanner Randall with Good Faith Media. Our guest on today's episode is Professor Robert J. Miller from Arizona State University. Professor Miller is an enrolled citizen of the Eastern Shawnee Tribe, and his 10 Legal Dimensions is one of the most cited and published pieces on the Doctrine of Discovery. You can find more of his in-depth work in Native America, Discovered and Conquered, Thomas Jefferson, Lewis and Clark, and Manifest Destiny, a book by Robert J. Miller. I'm here with Professor Robert J. Miller from Arizona State. Bob, how are you? Very good. Thanks for talking to me. Uh, so to start out briefly, today's episode is going to go over uh, property and sovereignty as we know it. There are specific cases in the United States, as well as I know that you have some exper- or a lot of experience with the international realm. But for those of, the, of you who don't know, uh, Bob, could you possibly explain sovereignty briefly? Sovereignty is an old word, of course, comes from the idea of sovereigns, 
kings and queens who had the authority to cut your head off if they didn't like your looks, right? But sovereignty doesn't have that meaning today if you look in legal dictionaries or even in Webster's Dictionary. Mm -hmm. The definition is roughly the ultimate independent power to govern your own people, your own country. And I suppose if we're talking personal sovereignty, then it's the power and right to govern yourself. So it's about sovereignty, the governance of a country in essence. Okay. Uh, thank you for explaining that. And I, I guess I have a question because in my own academic pursuit, I always kind of got confused or finding myself questioning the difference between sovereignty and autonomy. Um, are they one in the same? Uh, can you kind of go into that a little bit? Well, I mentioned the word personal sovereignty, but you and I have no independence from the United States, really, mm-hmm. do we? Uh, the laws the United States passes and enacts, you and I had better comply with or we will end up in federal prison. But part of the American political theory is that the consent of the governed, we created the United States and we endowed it with certain powers to protect us. And so this is European philosophers that I'm no expert on, but they had written about for decades, John Locke and others, I think Montesquieu even, the fact that the individuals give up certain powers to the city government, the state government, and the federal government to protect them, to have an army, to have law enforcement, to provide schools and build highways. But we give up certain rights. So I don't think you can say that you and I have some sort of personal autonomy that exists separately from the United States or from the state we live in. There's certain arenas that are forced. The Ninth Amendment of the Constitution says powers not granted to the United States are reserved to the people and to the states respectfully. Respectably, excuse me. So that's almost a direct quote. So our founding fathers knew that we were giving up certain rights to the federal government. And by living in a state, we gave up certain rights to the state government, but we did retain other human rights to control where we live, what kind of job we do, what you know, who we marry, blah, 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 blah. You mentioned something that I think is an important distinction uh, for the sovereignty of the citizens within America and the reality that indigenous peoples face. You say that um, those groups are giving up certain rights in order to consent to the system like the government, like the social contract. But we see indigenous nations not necessarily giving up their rights. They're being taken from them in some respect. So I'm wondering if you can kind of go into, since this is a podcast about the doctrine of discovery, even the doctrine of Christian discovery, how is that kind of affecting indigenous nations today and particularly their limitations of sovereignty? Well, you ask a very intriguing question. I ask my classes this all the time. When did American Indian peoples consent to be governed by the United States and be part of the body polity? We were always excluded. If you read the Constitution, Indian peoples were not to be counted as U.S. citizens. That's in Article One, Section 3, and it's in the 14th Amendment. So even in the Civil War amendments in which the uh, ex-slaves of the South were granted full citizenship rights, American Indians were still excluded. It was not until 1924 that the United States made all Indians citizens. And I believe the Onondaga nation here who wants to travel on their own passports, there are some American Indian peoples who say, I am not an American citizen. I never agreed to that. So this is very intriguing question you're asking, Tanner. 
Is the consent of the governed somehow violated? But I'm going to teach constitutional law this January for the first time, and I'm going to ask my students, when did you consent to be governed by this U.S. Constitution from 250 years ago? By being born? I guess we consent by not moving away, right? How else do we read? In 1787 and 1788, the states held conventions and the people voted, so they actively consented to that government. But when did you and I? And how? So what you ask about Indians and, and tribal nations. They were dominated. They were conquered. I'm putting quotes around the word conquered. <laughs> Even if it wasn't in an actual war, the doctrine of discovery that you mentioned has that as one of the elements. When Europeans showed up and planted their flag and cross in the soil, they deemed that they had just won a war. And they acquired sovereignty rights and property rights over land and assets. So this was very much a colonial uh, ripoff. Uh, I can't think of a better word. This is, Johnson v. McIntosh itself says this is an extravagant and pretentious idea that Europeans enforced with the power of the sword. In Johnson v. McIntosh, twice, John Marshall writes, we enforce this law by the power of the sword. So what is law? I, I teach first-year classes, and I ask students, well, what is law? Is it some magical, mystical thing? Or is it the power of the sword? Why do you and I drive the speed limit? Because if we don't, you get a ticket. And if you speed too often, they take your driver's license away. So we obey the law because of coercion. And the doctrine of discovery is plainly coercion. Wow, that's given me a lot to think about because now I'm trying to consider, did I ever consent to be governed? And at what point, I, I believe like registering to vote is probably the closest thing mm -hmm. I have had to any kind of consent of you know govern, being governed. Um, but it almost seems like inaction is what kind of sparks your consent to be governed. You don't necessarily rebel when you're younger to like move to a different area to be, you know, I'm not necessarily five years old saying, I don't want to be governed by America, so I'm leaving for elsewhere. But what do you tell your parents? I'm leaving home. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you so know, some people do move from state to state, right? They're not happy with perhaps a, a real liberal state, so maybe a conservative person moves away or vice versa. A liberal person in a very conservative state where now abortion's illegal, they might move. So that's what we call voting with your feet. But how many people leave the United States completely because they don't like the form of government? I mean, some do, right? The Vietnam War people went to Canada to avoid the draft. Uh, that has nothing to do with the consent of the governed, I don't think, but it's sort of an example of what you and I are just talking about. And that takes me to an interesting uh, topic in that a lot of American citizens can move state to state if they don't feel that they resonate with a lot of the particular state laws. But something that is challenging for the populace to understand is the spiritual ties and cultural ties that indigenous peoples have to their property and land. And so I think that it's worth talking about kind of the need to have a space for indigenous revitalization, need to have kind of borders. So if you could kind of speak on um, why indigenous nations, and I know it's it's hard to talk about all of the 500 plus federally recognized and even more uh, state recognized and not 
ones that do not have recognition because they don't have paperwork to show it, which is in some cases outrageous. Um, but can you speak on to speak on why indigenous communities feel this passion to protect their sovereignty? Well, you asked first, I thought you were going to ask about land. So you have place-based religions, place-based cultures, place-based economies. This is why the removal era was so destructive to Indian peoples. Why do we call it the Trail of uh, Tears? Because those tribes were moved from the southwest, to the American southeast, forced to an entirely different environment, different soil, different crops. My tribe was moved. In fact, we were the first tribe to be moved to what's now Oklahoma. We arrived in uh, December of 1832. We were removed from South Central Ohio, forced by the United States and forced by the encroachments of the increasing American population around us, theft, invasions of our lands, risks to our lives. And so a lot of my Shawnee ancestors said, it's better to move. We got to get out of here. But what a, di what a disruption to your life. And you're leaving where your relatives are buried. So if you're a religion that believes in sacred sites, you now can't practice your religion. You're not like most Christian churches that can build a new building 10 blocks away and people just drive to a different place, right? The Mormon tabernacle or Jerusalem. Look how some religions have placed such significance. Can you imagine that the state of Utah would build a four-way freeway through the Mormon tabernacle? I kind of doubt they would condemn those lands for that. So in one sense, that's kind of a sacred site for, for Latter-day Saints. And so I guess I'm comparing that to indigenous peoples. To be uprooted and moved is so destructive, so depressing. It's almost a miracle that these tribal nations survived and thrived. Uh, the tribes that moved to the Indian Territory that's now Oklahoma made amazing recoveries from the lives that they, lives they had had, the economies they had had, the religions they had had in the American Southeast. And to just have that uprooted involuntarily and you're forced to move, uh, it's a miracle those tribes still exist today and those cultures and religions still exist. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because we went to... Uh, George Emilio Sanchez's performance last night, and he talked about the U.S. Forestry Service uh, bringing this case to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court basically saying, well, even though your site isn't there, you can still practice your religion. We're not restricting that at all. And it's just such a misunderstanding of spirituality and religion. Um, I've written an article on that case. When I was a law student, I published an article on the Ling decision. You're talking about the mm. Northwest Indian Protective Cemetery Association versus Ling, who was, I believe, the secretary of either interior or agriculture. And yes, it shows that one mindset, one religion, just cannot understand another religion and another mindset. The fact that these tribal peoples in Northern California needed these sacred places, these quiet places for their medicine people to go and to meditate and to acquire uh, power to serve their people, the Supreme Court just can't picture that. Because again, as I said, most religions could move a couple blocks, could build a new building, and no one even thinks, give that a second thought. But for these indigenous religions that are place-based, this is a, a, a rupture that hurts the earth, hurts 
our world, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not of these religions or that culture, so I'm explaining this as an outsider, but that's exactly what we're up against. And the Ling decision is a disaster, written by Sandra Day O'Connor, and she perverted the definition of the First Amendment because the First Amendment says that government can pass no law that prohibits the free exercise of religion. She did not use the word prohibit in her Ling opinion. She used the word coerce, coercion. She said the government is not forcing these Yurok's, uh, Hoopas, and Taloa Indians to not practice their religion. Well, Justice O'Connor, that's not the word from the Constitution. Congress can do nothing that prohibits the free exercise of religion. That's the word in the First Amendment. And instead, she uses the word coercion. That's an entirely different word. And so a little judicial trickery there to reach a decision that is, the Ling decision just stops any claims today by indigenous peoples to rights at sacred sites. Hmm. If those sacred sites are not within your reservation boundaries and you don't own them, you just don't have much of a chance to claim any right and protect that land. So there's cases going on in Arizona right now, uh, Oak Flat, about mining, going to destroy an Apache, a San Carlos Apache site, and I just kind of despair. Litigation seems fruitless when you have that Ling decision. It's, it's truly tragic, and one would hope that you know, the United States that's built on checks and balances and says that, you know, misunderstandings of power or malpractice within the government can be righted. You'd hope that something would come about and change, you know, some of that lingo in instead of saying coerce, you know, change it to prohibit. But yeah, we obviously have seen that. Yeah, from the Constitution, exactly. Justice O'Connor. Uh, she also made a statement that's just I mean, it's true, and it was like the end of the case. She said these Indians are trying to impose a servitude, a religious servitude on what is, after all, the United States land. So she looked at the ownership of the underlying title and that other peoples cannot have rights there. And a lot of Native cultures have a different view of property rights. Hawaiians... Uh, the right to go on other people's lands to gather certain things. Australia, the Aboriginal people's rights to go on other people's lands to gather certain things or do certain things or conduct a ceremony. So indigenous religions and indigenous property systems have a different view of the ownership of land than does the Anglo-American property system. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and before we sign off here, I want to make sure I get around to, uh, we spoke before about your experience also talking on an international level, and you mentioned uh, the 10 steps of breaking down the doctrine of discovery, and most recently in Africa. I was wondering if you could kind of introduce us to that topic and show that this you know, issue of sovereignty and this issue of people going and conquering uh populations is not something that's just isolated the United States, because often I think our history books focuses on such a America-centric curriculum. Absolutely. Uh, in my 2006 book, it's entitled Native America Discovered and Conquered, Thomas Jefferson, Lewis and Clark and Manifest Destiny. I break Johnson v. McIntosh down into what we in the law would call its elements, its basic constituent elements. And I find 10 elements like you mentioned. I won't recount those right now. You, you buy my book uh, or check it out from the library for free. <laughs> but 
I then got the idea, maybe my only brilliant idea in my life, breaking the case down into its elements was intriguing because now I could compare colonization across countries. And so in 2011, I published two articles on how Spain applied the doctrine of discovery in Chile and how Portugal applied the doctrine of discovery in Brazil. And I used those 10 elements from Johnson v. McIntosh to compare the history and the law in Chile, Spain, Portugal, and Brazil. And I conclude they pretty much used all 10 of those elements to conquer and colonize the indigenous peoples of what's now Chile and Brazil. Uh, I just published another article, came out last year, about Africa and how in the Berlin Conference from 1884 to 1885, 13 European countries gathered, debated, and wrote an act that is called the Berlin Act. And they said, we are codifying international law to colonize Africa. What international law were they colonizing? Well, the Doctrine of Discovery. And it was already 460 years old by the time they held this Berlin conference and carved up Africa. So that's my most recent article. And a book I published in 2010 with uh, indigenous scholars from Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, we used my 10 elements to analyze how England applied this international law in our four countries, the US, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. Mm. So those 10 elements are a wonderful way to analyze colonization, not just by the US, but by other countries. And I'm working right now, I have a student working on the Sami peoples from Scandinavia. Mm. So we are looking at how Russia, Finland, Norway, and Sweden, if they did, that's what we're looking for, and then how did they apply the doctrine of discovery and those 10 elements to colonize the Sami peoples. I'm a little bit curious. You're saying that you have these 10 points within Johnson v. McIntosh that you apply to other situations. What do you kind of investigate as far as when you look at a country, um, say, Chile? Like, what documents are you looking at to see, to measure how much they may have been colonized. In regards to Chile, I found out that the Spanish Empire is far more legalistic than is the England Anglo-American system. They pass laws about everything. There's the 1513 laws for the New Indies that were amended, I believe, in like 1532. There are a lot of my 10 elements of discovery evident in the laws that the kings of Spain imposed that applied to the whole new world. So I say my article's only about Chile, but it's about how Spain colonized in the entire new world. I just chose to focus on Chile. So then when I looked at Chile, I looked at Pedro Valdiviva. He sent there in 1541 with orders to do certain things. Those orders, some of them are some of my 10 elements. He goes there to conquer by war or peacefully to conquer if the people don't fight back. He establishes cities. He establishes church to Christianize the people. That's one of the elements of the doctrine of discovery, obviously, and to civilize these savage peoples. I put quote marks for your audience over the word civilization. Who was civilized? Indigenous peoples were more civilized than these European barbarians that came in to kill and rape and steal. 
But that's not the way world history teaches it, is it? Mm-hmm. So then how I applied, how did Portugal do the same thing in Brazil? So I look at the laws, I look at the historical facts, what the colonial governors in Brazil did, and then in Brazil you can read their modern-day constitution, and there's some elements of the doctrine of discovery in the Brazilian constitution today. So I looked at, once Chile broke away from Spain and acquired independence, I looked at Chilean laws, their constitution, how they deal with indigenous peoples, and I'm looking for my 10 elements. So I, I often use a co-author because I need someone who's an expert in the law of that country. So my co-author on the Chile article was a professor from Catholico University uh, in Santiago. So we use the history and law of those countries looking for evidence of the doctrine of discovery. Mm -hmm. And that's how I did this in Africa and the Berlin Act. I focused on only three countries, uh, Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania, because they were colonized by England and Germany under that Berlin Act I mentioned under 1885. So again, we looked at the history and the law to see if England and Germany used the doctrine of discovery, these 10 elements. And our conclusion was absolutely yes. That's quite remarkable. Um, I, I want to end with this kind of idea. I think it's so important that your work is looking at these specific countries. Somebody may say, well, you can just look at the empires and see their you know, strategy book to going and colonizing. But by looking at these isolated countries and digging into their communities, like you said, working with professors in the area, it allows you to come at it from an indigenous perspective and be able to study these specific populations and not just give more um, time to the colonizer and without a better way of saying it. Um, But I I think your work's extremely important and thank you for everything you've been doing uh, across the world for indigenous populations. Thank you. Let me close with this. It's international law. What is international law? Maybe your audience should think about that. International law are the rules that governments agree to comply with in their actions vis-a-vis each other. So when it came time to claim empire around the world, each country wanted its discoveries to be recognized by the rest of the world. They didn't want wars over Panama and wars over Colombia. They wanted, hey, I was there first. Look, there's my flag and there's my cross. I own that first. And so under international law, countries agreed, the European countries, European Christian countries, agreed on how to divide the world. That's a pretty efficient, cheap way to do it. So by looking at the doctrine of discovery, we are trying to say, here's what happened to indigenous peoples, here's why we're fighting back, and here's why you should stop ignoring your own history and your own law, and you should face up to what you did, you European countries. Wow, that's powerful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Doctrine of Christian Discovery, recorded at the 2023 Religious Origins of White Supremacy Conference at Syracuse University in New York. This podcast is produced in collaboration between Good Faith Media, Syracuse University, and the Indigenous Values Initiative. I'm Tanner Randall for Good Faith Media. Our executive producers are Mitch Randall of Good Faith Media, Philip P. Arnold, and Sandy Big Tree of the Indigenous Values Initiative, and Adam D.J. Brett of Syracuse University and the American Indian Law Alliance. Our producer is Cliff Vaughn. Our editor is David Pang. Our music comes from Pond5. 
production assistance provided by the American Indian Law Alliance. To learn more, go to doctorandofdiscovery.org.